So ecosemiotics, for ecosemiotics, environment has semiotic quality in different ways and levels. In human culture, environment can become meaningful in literary and artistic representations or through symbolization of animals or landscapes. So this is directly relevant to uh, the Bhagavata Purana, the artistic, literary and artistic representations, but it's in two levels because it's also through language. And then we may ask why focus on the Bhagavata Purana, to which I would suggest uh, an essential point is not to think of the Bhagavata Purana as simply Indian sacred literature, which it certainly also is, but rather it is classical world literature. And as such, uh, it is wisdom literature for the entire world. And of course, the Bhagavata in recent decades uh, has been translated into many languages of the world. So it's becoming a literary presence worldwide. All right, so why the Bhagavata's semiotics and why eco-semiotics? Of course, the Bhagavata is highly regarded throughout India, and I would suggest that it supports a deep remedial and corrective process or processes for all of humankind toward devotional eco-balance, as I would call it, and away from ego-based ruination. And so semiotics, uh, which again is about signs and meaning, points to the thinking dimension, which connects to the neurological sphere of biological models of systems where any chain of causality necessarily begins. Um, And this chain of causality is itself rooted in motivation. And this motivation, according to Bhagavad Gita, is rooted broadly in desire and aversion. So in the Bhagavata Purana, Um, Nature is very much a focus, and particularly in the 10th skanda, there are many stories of Sri Krishna's adventures in what I would call the bucolic forests of Rajavrindavan, especially as a child and as a youth. However, uh, the text as a whole frames the Krishna story in a context of devolving human capacity loss and moral decay following the Kurukshetra war of the Mahabharata. Uh, And so it's anticipating an apocalyptic dystopia, not a utopia, but a dystopia at the end of the Kali age characterized by natural disasters. Uh, And this is presented very much in the first skanda, it's introduced, and then the final, the twelfth skanda, uh, is uh, 
again returning to the theme of the characteristics, uh, the signs of this uh, current age, age of Kali. A little about the structure of the Bhagavata. Um, The outer frame is Sutta. Sutta Goswami is narrating the Bhagavata Purana to sages in the beginning of Kali Yuga. Uh, And these sages are attempting to perform a yajna, and they are not able to keep the fires lit. Uh, and so they resort to narration of the Bhagavata Purana. Then, within that frame, we have Shuka narrating the Bhagavata to King Parikshit, and I'll say a bit more about that later. And then within his narrative, we have the account of Krishna Leela in Braja. So the failing fires... Um, and also an, an account of the earth cow being abused by the disguised Kali in the first skanda is narrated by Sutta. And then uh, Shuka, in um, most of the Bhagavatam, Shuka is speaking from the second canto on, the second skanda, and in the fourth skanda in particular, he's again returning to the representation of earth as cow. And in this case, it's interesting that uh, the cow is withholding uh, the, the goods of the earth um, until threatened by the king, King Pritu. And then she, uh, the earth cow, yields her milk to Pritu and all of the other um, persons and um, sorts of beings of the earth. And then, uh, again, Shuka narrates uh, Krishna Leela in Raja, especially in the beginning of the uh, tenth skanda. There are a number of nature-related signs in the Bhagavata Purana, and I'm just touching on a few of them here. Um, All related to nature, in the first skanda, uh, the encounter of king and sage, representing Dharma um, in opposition to Kali, who is representing Adharma. But dharma and adharma, uh, it's a kind of carryover from the Mahabharata, the theme that the effort to establish dharma is becoming more and more difficult as time passes. And so then as, um, as Kali appears representing adharma, then uh, the Kali age uh, unfolds uh, in the course of the Bhagavata Purana. And then we have different animals again, cow and bull representing earth and dharma, the snake in particular representing uh, fate and death, um, but also leading to um, devotional perfection, bhakti, 
considerable significance is there for fire, uh, depending is it contained or is it uncontained, and also water, which can be both uh, destructive and regenerative. And then we have features of, um, of the world, natural features, ocean, mountain, trees, and these are all, again, sources of generation and regeneration. And in particular, there are forests. And there won't be a whole lot of time to explain this, but uh, forests are places both of danger and of shelter. So again, the king, uh, King Parikshit, is representing dharmic leadership in opposition to Kali, uh, who is embodiment of adharma, being in opposition to dharma, um, the dharmic order he's conceived, which is conceived as cosmic or natural order. Uh, then again, there's the cow and the bull, personifications of earth and dharma. And what Kali does in the narrative of the first skanda is to damage three of the bull's four legs. These are austerity, purity, and compassion, uh, such that the bull um, is left standing on one leg only, the leg of truthfulness. And this is also rapidly deteriorating. The whole idea, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole um, frame of the Bhagavata Purana, a major concern of the Bhagavata, is to exclude uh, what it calls kaitava dharma or deceitful dharma. And Kali, in particular, is representing deceitful dharma. Uh, in contrast to Parikshit is uh, the sage Shuka, who represents perfected harmony with nature, or we may say a kind of medium between the human and the natural. Uh, sage Shuka is detachment personified, his detachment is Atma Rama, and yet, and this is important in the Bhagavatam, he is attracted to bhakti, toward Hari, uh, to nature's source. Uh, significantly, he is digambara, he is clothed by the directions, and this also indicates his communion with nature. Uh, he is uh, a personification of the opposite of Kamadeva um, by virtue of his absolute detachment. So yes, a little more about forests. For Maharaj Parikshit, the forest is a place of frustrated desire and thirst. Later in the fifth skanda, is the story of Bharata. We don't have time to go into his story, but for him it is a place of distraction uh, where he's attempting to practice yoga meditation, but he allows himself to become distracted. For Ajamila, 
in the beginning of uh, the sixth skanda. The forest is a place of fall down from Brahmanical behavior um, in which he encounters a nameless, low-class, possibly an outcast woman representing wild, untamed passion. And she, in turn, represents nature as illusion uh, or a manifestation of maya, the magic or illusion perpetuating bondage in samsara. In general, the Bhagavata represents women as a danger, uh, and they are thereby associated with wild, nat wild nature. But this is, uh, importantly, there are exceptions uh, to this. There are Queen Kunti, Queen Devahuti, and most especially the Rajagopis in the 10th book. Vrindavan Forest, then, uh, is a place of ultimate shelter, and it's a place where the semiology significantly shifts. Uh, the elements and other signs of nature become the perfect stage for the enactment of bhakti, and where, for example, a snake, a multi-headed snake, Kaliya, who has a name and has wives, uh, facilitate Sri Krishna's play. And his play in this particular leela is the, the elimination of pollution from the Yamuna River and uh, the immediate environments of the Yamuna. So, continuing on this point of uh, the 10th skanda having a radically different semiology of nature from the 1st through 9th and the 11th through 12th skandhas, there is a shift in binaries from dharma versus adharma to Krishna and his devotees versus assorted so-called demons, asuras, uh, who are often appearing in monster-like animal forms. Nature as a subject of devotion and uh, therefore a source of love. Nature becomes a backdrop or a background uh, for the dramatic stage of rasa, especially prema rasa or um, as a playground, nature becomes a playground, an aesthetic enhancement for the enactment of Krishna's sports and for the display of reciprocal devotional sentiments between Krishna and his devotees. So Vraja or Vrindavan may be described as not, ex not natural so much as supernatural, where everything functions under Krishna's supervision, and I'm sort of playing on that word, taking the literal meaning, actually. Uh, more directly, uh, this play is happening under the direction of Yoga Maya, where Vraja is characterized by rustic abundance, cosmic functions, flora and fauna are exhibited, 
uh, exhibiting aesthetically pleasing harmony, especially at the time of Krishna's um, avirbhava, his appearance. In Vraja, nature is super real because of its constant proximity to Krishna as the absolute real Satchit Ananda Vigraha. Uh, nature is under the supervision of Yoga Maya, as I mentioned, whereas ordinary nature outside Vraja is under the supervision of Mahamaya, the illusory illusion generating, illusion-perpetuating feature of divine power. Yoga Maya is Krishna's artful and wondrous instrument for securing connections, yoga, between himself and his devotees. Going back to the other side of nature, outside of Raja, the general theme is that the Bhagavata, as a didactic work, aims to include a pointed challenge to the human assumption that nature is to be or can be dominated and exploited for selfish purposes. And as I've been discussing, there are so many semiotic signs for this, various elements, uh, classes of flora and fauna, and land features. The Bhagavata presents an implicit dividing line between wild nature and tame nature, attempts to tame or domesticate nature, even with the best dharmic intentions, may temporarily succeed, but wild nature is ever-threatening to teach an essential lesson for human beings. Bhakti inverts the signs and meanings, particularly in, in the tenth skanda, such that nature is an active participant in devotional exchange. For example, a mountain becomes an umbrella for Krishna and his friends, a multi-headed snake becomes a stage for Krishna's dancing, a whirlwind becomes an opportunity for baby Krishna to fly about, and cows and bulls become expansions of Krishna. Uh, the theme of nature's devotionally reciprocal bounty in the 10th canto is highlighted there. Within the context of nature as oppositional, um, second of two main categories of nature in Raja, the story of Govardhan is especially important to highlight nature's bounty. And there are three aspects of this leela, uh, which are to be noted. First, there's the initial festival as a feast of bounty offered to Govardhan, which Krishna identifies himself with. And thus, Krishna identifies himself with the bountiful embodiment of nature, and bountiful nature becomes a form of the divinity, a form that receives human sacrificial, that is, vegetarian offerings of nature's products as food. Second, Krishna positions himself when the deluge begins between the destructive forces of nature and the Vraja residents. 
Hence, as the protector of his devotees against the onslaughts of any adversarial forces manifest in nature. And thus he uh, both separates and joins together two aspects of earth, its sustaining supportive features, uh, the earth as a whole, and its protective feature, uh, the hill functioning as an umbrella. Third, the Leela concludes with a celebratory display of cosmic plenitude in the form of a royal consecration. Trees flow with honey, plants become ripe without cultivation, mountains bear jewels forth to their surface, all animals become non-inimical. It is the realm of eternal possibility. And so Govardhan, this hill or this mountain, can be understood as, um, as an embodiment of bhakti. Familiar nature is transformed into unfamiliar nature in Govardhan Leela, and this Leela contributes substantially to the Bhagavad's overall picture of nature in relation to bhakti and dharma. And I won't read the Sanskrit here, but the translation, alas, friends, this mountain is the best servant of Hari. Touched by the feet of Balaram and Krishna, he is jubilant. He offers respects to the Lord by providing drinking water, soft grass, fruits, flowers, vegetables, and caves to them, along with their calves, cows, and friends. I'm going a bit over time, so making it quick. Uh, the Bhagavata's narrative representations of nature may contribute to environmental protection discourse. Holism, as a fuzzy concept, can gain some specificity. The Bhagavata's narrative representations of nature are best understood in the context of the wider discourse on the relationship between dharma and bhakti. The Bhagavata argues that dharma, uh, both individual and cosmic, can be effectively pursued only in the light of the deeper principle of bhakti, specifically in relation to Krishna. And the text offers a panentheistic perspective reaching beyond abstract theologizing on effective environmental protection. Uh, and finally, the Bhagavata advances two challenges to present day, the present-day world. It offers a case for the protection of animals rather than consumption of them, and it urges Krishna Bhaktas to protect the land of Raja specifically and the world as a whole generally as a place of divine presence. And I will end there and say thank you all very much indeed.